welcome to Chit Chat Money. On this show, hosts Ryan Henderson and Brett Schaefer interview industry experts and riff on the world of investing. As a quick reminder, Chit Chat Money is a CCM Media Group podcast. Ryan and Brett are also general partners at Arch Capital, and Arch Capital may have positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Anything discussed on Chit Chat Money by Ryan or Brett or any other podcast guests is not formal advice or recommendation. Now, please enjoy this episode. Welcome in. This is the Sunday Deep Dive episode with Brad Freeman. He is joining us. I'm here with Ryan as always. I think you guys know that, but we're going to be talking Upstart Holdings. Brad, we got to get an update. How is Michigan doing in the NCAA tournament? I know we're going to get down to it. So, Yeah, on to the Sweet 16. Um, I do not think Isaiah Livers is going to play this weekend, but he could always shock the world. Who knows? Oof. All right. Well, we'll be play. We're uh, Florida State. Florida. Florida, um, Florida State. Yeah, we're we're a Gonzaga uh, show here, but our second. Um, we'll be rooting for Michigan a bit too, I guess. But Ryan, a backup pick. Yeah. So we're gonna have Ryan introduce what Upstart Holding is. But before we do that, we gotta talk as always. Seven investing. Yeah. Um, How long I, until the new racks? What? Oh gosh. From here, here, it would be only. Yeah. When you're listening to this, it'll be even less. So. You know, this is the time to sign up. If you've ever been on the fence, probably now you get $10 off. If you use our code CCM at checkout, that would be seven bucks. If you do the monthly plan and then they give you a discount already on the yearly plan. So you basically get a double discount. If you want to sign up for a year, really save money. If you're trying to test out their service uh, for a year, because in reality, if you just get one month, it's not like you're getting the full breadth of the service. Uh, But yeah, sweet deal. Great performance. They're crushing the S&P 500. Uh, so we need to find a way to rejuvenate our sales pitches. I mean, know? we've been talking about Spice this. Spice it up a little bit. Yeah. I mean, I'll just say it's a part of our research process. We like to read what they write. It's true. And it's not like we just blindly buy what they buy, but you got to take it and be like, all right, that's a good idea. Now I'm going to uh, research myself if I agree with everything they say. Inspiration. It can be inspiration. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> but Ryan, you want to talk about Upstart Holdings? Yeah. So, uh, I've got their mission statement here. It is uh, to enable enable effortless credit based on true risk. Um, and in quotes, I've got, we are a leading artificial intelligence lending platform. And so I, w- maybe we talk about this too much, but I'm beginning to question what AI means. Um, it feels like any automated spreadsheet calculation is officially artificial intelligence. Now, no, don't get me wrong. Upstart is... Uh, it, what they're doing is impressive. Their numbers look good, yeah. But I think we need to temper what AI means. No, it just means one really, really big Excel spreadsheet. That's what just I'm picturing. Huge, just ginormous. I'm picturing all these like uh, machine learning robots, like stuff. But it's probably just an automated spreadsheet. Anyway, all right. Uh, I know it. It's, it might sound a little weird, but it sounds like they actually uh, what they're doing is working. So their default rates. Uh, are tr- lower than traditional lending and acceptance rates are higher. Um, Upstart's, Upstart approves 27% more borrowers with a 16% lower average APR, which is basically their interest rate. Um, and an internal study, which take that with a grain of salt, said that their system lowers loss rates by 75%. Uh, I guess the thing, the way to vet that is how many banking partners they get. Yeah. Um, because 
an internal study, there could be some nuance to that that makes them look better. But if they're getting banking partners, then obviously their loss rates are lower. Uh, but there's essentially two parts of the platform. There's the front end or what the partners and the customers are seeing. And then there's the back end. So I'll talk about the front end first. Upstart connects banks and customers in kind of a unique way. So customers can come directly to upstart.com and they receive a $1,000 to $50,000 personal loan with APRs that range from 6.5% to 35% and banks will supply the capital. You can also go to a bank's website and use that as the top of the funnel, but it still gets and still powered by uh, Upstart on the back end, if that makes sense. Um, and it's basically the Upstart application, but just bank branded. Uh, but then on the back end, Upstart's model, it, it, traditionally it's based on the FICO score. That's what credit worthiness was kind of determined by, which is in their opinion, an outdated model. And so what they do, what they use is at least a thousand variables, um, which is just, columns on a spreadsheet essentially um, and they use it to target fee optimization income fraud identity fraud default prediction prepayment prediction and 70 percent of this process right now is automated so there's no need for documentation or a phone call you just sign up and you can get granted these personal loans but this is where it gets kind of interesting so once you put in or you apply for this personal loan, then you get a bank partner that's willing to put up the front, the capital essentially. But the bank is doesn't always have the capital to put up the full loan. I'm sure they do, but they might have sort of risk mandates um, required. So when that happens, the banks can access what is called the CRB conduit or the Cross River Bank conduit. This is basically an entity just designed to absorb the risk. Um, or some of the risk, and it's responsible for 67% of the loan originations on the Upstart platform. And the way I understand the CRB network, and you guys can uh, correct me if I'm wrong, is it's basically this network of institutional investors that are willing to fund these loans. So they'll get an institutional investor and they'll have something that says like, all right, this person is asking for $35,000 loan, 9% interest due in four years. Is that something you want to take? And the institutional vest investor will go, they get access to that through CRB, CRB will front it, they, they give the money to the bank, and then the bank in coordination or collaboration with CRB fronts the money to the customer. I know that's a long-winded way of saying it's basically diversifying risk across different entities. Um, Are you describing a CDO? Essentially, it's not, it's not a CDO. Uh, but the deal with CRB is set to end in 2023, but it can be renewed for another two years under the current terms. Uh, Upstart collects referral fees from its partner banks for each loan it originates, which is basically, I think it makes up 98% of Upstart's revenue. So for every um, referral that they give uh, or every customer they bring in, borrower, uh, the bank is offering them a fee. Essentially, it's essentially a commission. Yeah, I um, think I was looking at their S1. It would be less than 1% on the commission, but they also get the referral fees as well. I think it was like three to 400 bucks per uh, per loan. So uh, pretty, I, I don't know. I really don't know how good that rate is, but yeah, they're getting some some sort of 1% commission. But does that kind of make sense how the back end works? Yeah, they're basically the layer. And Brad, maybe you're thinking about it maybe in a different way. They're the layer between more and more borrowers and lenders. That's kind of, you know, that tech layer trying yeah. to replace the credit score. And they are, yeah. 
Brad, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, that makes sense. And the, and the conduit thing, it sort of sounds like a clearinghouse to me just to ensure yeah. that these loans are staying liquid and, and, and guaranteed. So yeah, I, I think, I think it was a good explanation. Okay. Okay. And, and on that front end, the customers, a lot of them go through upstart.com, but then if you go to the bank, the bank, it's kind of like Olo, which if you don't know what Olo is, they can kind of, they have an application that you can brand it uh, to make it look like it's yours, but it's still powered by Upstart in this case. But I'll get into the history. Um, they were founded in 2012 by three people. So Dave Gerard, Gerard maybe, might be getting that wrong, Paul Gu and Anna Councilman. So Dave's the CEO. He was the former president of Google Enterprise. And before that, he was a product manager at Apple. Paul Gu was a Thiel Fellow, oh, which is like the Peter Thiel <laughs> Fellowship. Um, <laughs> And he actually has a really impressive background. So I'm going to read this. Uh, it says, okay, so he's the co-founder. He's head of product and data science. So it says, Paul leads the product and data science teams at Upstart. Paul pioneered Upstart statistical models to predict income and employment. He has a background in quantitative finance and built his first algorithmic trading strategies on the interactive brokers API at the age of 20, achieving a sharp of 2.03. And previously worked in risk analysis at DE Shaw Group. That's pretty good. Bezos. No, I mean, I Bezos. joke. Yeah, that's that's for that's where Bezos went. So obviously, everyone there's the gold. That's the golden uh, the golden touch. But I make I, fun really? of, I make fun of teal teal fellows because it's kind of a weird thing. But if you get into that, <laughs> you're you're a genius. And uh, more on that, he says during college, Paul led underwriting for two nonprofit micro lenders in the U.S. He has been recognized as one of the Peter Teal's twenty under twenty fellows, Forbes thirty mm-hmm. under thirty, and Silicon Valley's Business Journal's forty under forty. Paul studied economics and computer science at Yale. Um, so yeah, impressive, impressive background, I guess. Yeah. But the other founder went to Google. If he he tells you, I think Paul Gu might've come might've worked at Google at a point as well, but then Anna Councilman is sort of the customer facing side and she became, uh, well, she came to upstart, but before that she ran the Gmail consumer operations. Um, and they started lending originally by themselves, but early on they realized it would obviously be better to partner with banks and they went public in December of 2020. So they're brand new to the public markets and they've, had an impressive run. They have had a hot start. Yeah. Brad, did you have anything else on that? Uh, you might have. I, I mean, it's just, it's just crazy to, to hear their backgrounds. It's, yeah, it's a really impressive team. Yeah. They're, uh, again, we kid, they like to talk about how they worked at Google, but their track records are, are quite strong. And it seems like they got a good team over there, but I'll hit the industry and landscape and competition. Uh, so they estimate from their S1 that from April, 2019 to March, 2020. Now I think they did that because there's you know, COVID screwed everything up, but there was $3.6 trillion in consumer loans originated during that time span. So that's about the annual consumer loans out there. Now with their 1% tech rate, you can basically divide that by a hundred. And that's kind of what their, you know, revenue goal would be if you want to put a TAM on that. So, you know, the opportunity is not 3.6 trillion, but it's not small. But if they can just get 1%. Just get 1% of the TAM, yes. Uh, not really how you should think about it, but again, they're going after a large, large market. Competitors would be you know, traditional credit bureaus, think Experian, someone like that. People, you know, they're really competing with the FICO score because that's been the entrenched way that people get credit. Uh, and then the big banks could possibly be competitors too. I know they had a quote from their S1 outlining any risks uh, that their business has. So they work with the, you know, I think the big four banks, or maybe not all of them right now, but they said these four banks may attempt to build AI lending models over time once general market acceptance has been achieved. So they're kind of saying, look, the smaller banks aren't going to be able to build what we have. They probably won't. But the big banks, 
if they wanted to, definitely could. Uh, another competitor is probably SoFi. There's a lot of smaller ones Square, out there potentially. too. Square they a little got bit. That bank charter. Yeah, I guess Square and Shopify. Now that you mentioned it, do the lending as well. Nelnet. Nelnet. Yeah, I, I mean, honestly, this is a upstart. Is a upstart if they go into student loans is a bit of a threat to Nelnet. Uh, there's also Lending Club. They're a lot smaller than there's person-to-person marketplaces. Again, a lot smaller. So large market, but I don't know. They kind of have a unique value proposition right now because they came up with something new. We'll see if anyone starts trying to repeat what they did. But Brad, do you want to talk about management a little bit more? Yeah. Uh, so Ryan kind of went over the executive team pretty thoroughly. So I'll go into ownership, um, institutional ownership, sitting at about 31.7% of the float. Uh, there's a very slow accumulation pattern taking place, which you would kind of hope to expect from a, a new IPO. Um, and then just notable holders, uh, the land of Dan Loeb, third point capital or third point ventures owns 18.2% of the upstart float. Uh, he also has a board seat um, or third point has a board seat. So, in, so insider ownership is listed as virtually 0%, but I kind of think you can consider that 18.2% to be institutional ownership, insider ownership based on the fact that they have board representation. Um, but I, I believe we're, yeah. So there, there's, it, it's listed at zero percent, but but you, I think we can consider it eighteen point two. So, so the founder CEO, the he doesn't have any a large ownership stake, or so so they they can have they they can have some options or warrants that haven't been exercised yet. But in, okay. in terms of the pro forma share count float, they own about 03 percent of it. Wow, that's a lot smaller than I would have thought. Maybe they just wanted a lot of funding and they needed to get. No, yeah. But it is important to note that they have pretty fat bonus packages in terms of warrants and options. So that insider ownership, I'm, I'm sure it'll grow as they exercise and, and likely don't sell the entire the entire package that they've been allotted. But as of right now, it's pretty low. I wonder if the capital fronted for this was from someone else. Third point. It seems were they the ones that kind of fronted all the capital? You think? Uh, some of it, yeah. Yeah, I would also worry a bit. Now, it's just short-term worries. It's really not something you should think about too hard. But when the lockup period hits, third point's going to want to liquidate their stake because they got to pay back their LPs. That's going to be a lot of um, maybe, maybe, maybe they're going to liquidate. I guess yeah, you're not you're not required to sell, but just traditionally the VCs sell once the lockup period ends. We're not at that yet, so that's something to consider as well. Yeah, and I, and I think also just based on the fact that the compensation packages are so heavily focused on, on derivatives and, and they, uh, there's going to be a lot of, there, there's always a lot of insider selling from, from companies on, on the lockup expiring. And I think for a company like this, it's important to keep in mind that these executives have the vast majority of their net worth tied up to this company. Um, they're still going to own a lot of it. <laughs> they're not, is, is, and, and as long as they're not just shipping off their entire stake, like, um, like that Uber founder did when, when he left the company or something like that. Uh, I, I, I wouldn't pay too much attention to the insider selling that's probably coming in, in the form of option exercises. Yeah, it's not. A, it's, insider buying can be cool like to see, but insider selling is usually just programmatic anyways. Yeah, but. These were uh, higher ups at Google. They're not pressed for cash. They're not like, <laughs> uh, I don't think they're having any liquidity issues. Oh, who knows? Maybe, maybe, maybe they're spenders. But. Maybe not. Maybe they're big spenders, but we don't want to get into that. Uh, I'll hit valuation. Market cap right now is about $9.3 billion. Ticker is UPST. However, for their first quarter guidance for fully diluted share count, market cap is actually going to be closer to $11 billion. So again, there's going to be some, sh- some 
share count headwinds. Make sure to look at that. Trailing price to sales is 40. So pretty, you know, you don't want to call it overvalued, but it's richly valued. Price to contribution profit. Now they don't give out gross margin. So I use this. I think that's the best or closest thing to gross margin that we could get. Although it's probably including a little bit more expenses. That is about 88.5. Again, this isn't like a 90% gross margin business, but it's still solid margins. It might be. Well, gross, maybe. I think there's a difference between contribution. And there is, there is, but they don't define gross and they had one line on their operating expenses that I thought could have been gross margin. So I, I'm not sure, maybe over time, gross margins could expand up super they, high, but we'll see. Yeah. They didn't put in gross profit, but I mean, when I think about it, like what, what's a cost of goods sold for them? Like cloud, cloud, storage, yeah, uh, cloud computing fees. I don't know. I think it's the customer operations that they had on there. But again, I would look at contribution profit because that is similar. Maybe it can expand more, yeah. but price to operating cash flow, again, it's high. It's almost 300, but they're pretty close to break even. No dividend. Um, again, expect share count headwinds. And the share price is about 120. Fun fact, their IPO priced price was around $20 a share. Jeez. Uh, so it like doubled on its IPO day and now it's gone up 300% since. So it is, uh, it, it's done phenomenally well. For, yeah. Uh, for and uh, investors. it's also worth mentioning that there, you see the trailing sales multiple of 40. I'm going to get into this in the earning, but the forward guidance for sales is very different than the trailing sales. They're guiding for a strong growth, yeah. Right. So for in 2020, they had revenue of 233 million. Uh, that was up 42% year over year. They originated 40% more loans on the platform than they did in the prior year, which unless there's some big pricing increase on the referral fees, expect those two to grow in tandem. And then operating income was 11.8 million. Operating cash flow was 31.5 million. They've really been pouring a lot of money into the income statement because I don't know, why not? The, a lot of it's on sales and marketing. And I don't see that it feels like a naturally high margin business because there isn't, it's not super capital intensive yeah. uh, from what I'm thinking about right now and as far as expenses go. Um, but next year, so they did 233 million in the last 12 months. Next year, they expect 500 million in revenue. So they're jumping from 41% revenue growth to 102%, somewhere 110 maybe percent growth. Um, and they expect a contribution margin of 41%. Uh, weighted average shares outstanding rose about 4% over the last year, but it's going to look very different uh, next quarter coming off the IPO. Uh, but the the earnings looked really good. And that's why when, when you have a guidance, it feels like they knew this guidance was coming. I can't believe they priced the IPO at $20. Yeah, I don't know. Whatever the bet, I don't know. It's crazy. There's their finance department kind of screwed the pooch. Yeah. Investment bankers came out very strong in this one. Bill Gurley, <laughs> Bill Gurley is shaking his fist. Uh, <laughs> but Direct listings for the win. Yeah, yeah. yeah. All right, yeah, uh, Brad, you want to hit balance sheet and liquidity? Yeah, uh, the company has about three hundred and eleven million in cash and restricted cash. It's got about one hundred and seventy-seven million in total liabilities, and it breaks that out to it doesn't call it debt, but it calls it borrowings. Um, so sixty-two million in total borrowings. Um, just to kind of dissect that a little bit, it's got a $20.5 million uh, fully drawn credit revolver, 
It's got another revolver worth up to 100 million that that it's only drawn down 35 million of. Um, it's paying a floating interest rate on that debt of LIBOR plus 3.35 to 4%. So really not not anything like ridiculous. That that's pretty reasonable. Um, yeah, the, the balance sheet I, I would call I would call pristine, uh, especially with I mean the recent run up in the share price and where the, what the enterprise value looks like right now, having 62 million in total debt, um, having 177 million in total liabilities. It, it's really, um, they have a lot of flexibility there. I think that's a strength for sure. And, yeah, they are good. And they aren't fronting the capital. They are the, the connector. They're fronting. They only front 2%. I was about to say. So only 2% okay. they originate. So most. If that grows over time, you could probably expect uh, some debt on the balance sheet to grow over time since they're, lending that money as well. Yeah. And that kind of could be, a, you could argue that they could be a Trojan horse to the banks, you know, where they start out as just the connector and then over time slowly morph into the bank. But again, they don't have that advantage of, they don't have the assets on their balance sheet. They would have to take in a lot of debt. One, it, it improved their margins, but originating the loans is just adding another piece of risk there. Every fintech company will become a bank. In the yeah. Industry. It's that, that <laughs> joke that people made. I'm trying to become a bank, but, uh, that's only yeah, for people to watch billions. Yeah, uh, that's it for the first half. We're going to take a break and we'll get to the second half of the show. Cox Panoramic Wi-Fi includes advanced security to help protect all your connected devices. You'll get real-time alerts. Oh, like this one. So you don't have to worry about malware. Or when your kid downloads a song from a shady link. And now all your computer can play is Red color, red color, where are you? All blocked, thanks to advanced security, included with Cox Panoramic Wi-Fi. Advanced security must be enabled in the Panoramic Wi-Fi app. Restrictions apply. Welcome back. Next up, we have competitive advantages. We'll kick things off with Brad. What do you got? I would highlight just just the business model providing very asset-light scaling. So with with their loans being not not quite three-quarters of the loans, but, but a very large chunk and close to three quarters of the loans being originated entirely um, autonomously, no, no human contact. Uh, I mean, there's, there's a lot of optionality here to expand into different offerings, to, to expand with, with new banks and do so without having just to hire absorbent amounts of people like, like you see with, um, with traditional banks or traditional insurance companies um, or, or other financial institutions. So, so I think there, I, I do think that a competitive edge is, is operating leverage kind of built into the model based on the fact that their artificial intelligence, no, no matter how legitimate you want to think it is or isn't, um, it, it is providing them with the ability to more profitably expand that I think a legacy bank will. Yeah, they don't. Why use a whole department when you can just have Paul Goo in his spreadsheet? <laughs> the, uh, yes, the, it feels a bit, if they can pull it off and scale like a visa or mastercard now that those are like the ultimate network effect operating leverage businesses but it feels slightly similar to that i don't want to say they're ever going to be like that there may be flaws they may not have the competitive advantage but the the basic it's it's almost uh, the reason i say this because upstart once this thing's going it basically has zero variable costs and that's why ryan was talking about how high margins how high their margins could be yeah uh potentially yeah, and I'll get into my competitive advantage, which is, well, I mean, so there isn't, when you think about the business, they're just trying to make uh, default rates as low as they possibly can and raise access to credit. And so 
your uh, the only advantage you have is either the quality of lending or uh, capital, like having the capital to lend, or in this case, being a low default rate connector. Um, but I would say potentially being smaller helps. So I guess if you think about the big banks, like they can't really take as much risk. Uh, and you don't have to go like if someone came up with a kind of model uh, that Paul Gu came up with and they're on the bottom trading floor at some big bank or whatever, like they have to go through a bunch of bureaucratic bullshit in order to get, <laughs> get that to the top or to get that implemented. You don't have to go through that at Upstart. And that's kind of, I mean, that is, I mean, it, we see it in all industries when, when <laughs> I hate I to use, I hate to use the art quote, but uh, what is it? Creative, dist- innovative destruction or whatever. Innovative like, disruption. No, it's innovators dilemma here where it's classic, whatever that Clay Christensen thing is um, that everyone talks about where the big banks, since them, they have so much lending that they do. And it's not just the big banks, it's other large financial institutions. They have it under a certain model. And if they want to change that, they got to change so many loans and how they originate that. That's a bigger risk than Upstart coming in here and doing it like this. Um, it's hard to describe uh, just audibly what the, you know, how, how that yeah. gives them some sort of competitive positioning where, you know, they're not risking as much of their reputation because they're all doing it this way. You know, Upstart is where the big banks, they'd have to change so much um, and that's kind of why they're partnering with Upstart. Focus, like uh, this is their main focus. Like it might not be for the big banks. Yeah. Well, I think a lot of, I think they're very focused on their default rates. Yeah, but they haven't, I mean, they haven't implemented this, all the variables that. Uh, well, maybe, I, I, that's what, that's what Upstart's argues. And that's the I big, guess, I guess we'll get into low lights. It's kind of. That is the question of competitive advantage is we don't really know what's going into the the decision behind a behind lending at the big banks. Yeah, it's kind of yes. FICO yes. score plus a few. Yeah, and I think we'll we'll probably discuss that later. But I'll hit mine before we move on. The data advantage, you know, they argue this a lot. I'm not sure. I believe it is rock solid, but I think it's more plausible than like DoorDash claiming they have an AI advantage. When I saw, see that in their flywheel, I, I always laugh. Uh, Prove me wrong, DoorDash, it's okay. But they've accumulated, you know, Upstart's accumulated a lot of data. They have a decade of training their model uh, and their numbers look great. The default rate looks a lot better. They're giving out more loans to different people. They're kind of disrupting the credit score, I think. Uh, And at some levels, you know, competitors could, you know, invest and copy this, but not, you know, I'm not sure whether it's either, they either have proprietary data or it's just tech expertise. And that's an advantage either way, but I'm not sure, like, could someone just invest a lot of money and copy this? Maybe. Uh, And is it all branding? I don't know. Uh, But that could be a competitive advantage for them. All right, future growth opportunities, Brad? Yeah, the the Prodigy purchase that they made or they announced in the last quarter provides some really interesting opportunities to expand into auto loans. So I guess just the last or the proof of concept has come from the last couple of years of, of these lower default rates and, and lower APRs. Um, and, and now they're kind of leveraging that proof of concept into other large areas of, of loan origination. Um, they're saying this could add another 92 billion in potential loans. 
Um, I wouldn't consider that a total addressable market because like Brett said, they're, they're not, it's not $1 to $1 for every dollar. It's not one-to-one -one for every dollar in loan they're originating, but it is pretty, it is pretty exciting in terms of revenue optionality on top of the 62% loan origination CAGR they, they've got going for the last several years. Yeah. The, the auto market, if they get momentum there, uh, it seems like that they could do really well. seems like, uh, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. And you kind of stole the, I mean, there was only, that was the one I was going to use, but I guess you could say, why doesn't this apply to mortgages? Why doesn't this apply to student loans? You yeah. Know? Do you want to say what prodigy is, Brad? I don't know if you looked at what that was. It's a little confusing, but yeah. So, uh, and I, and I could be wrong, but this is my understanding of it. It, it seemed like it was very similar to Upstart, but just focused on autos pretty, pretty strictly. Um, so yeah, that's my understanding if you want to add anything. I think it also was supposed to maybe like a Shopify niche where it helped people get like the, the front end of their websites. I honestly was confused looking at Prodigy uh, and they said it wasn't material to revenue. So I kind of ignored it, but it's an interesting development uh, that they're- yeah, it kind of seemed like they were, and, I, and I'm, I'm speculating here just based on listening to them talk a little bit, and I don't know a ton about the company or the management team, um, but based on what I know, it seems like they're going to keep this um, very private label approach for for their for their partners, and, and I don't think Prodigy is going to change that. I, I just think it it was their avenue into auto loans, more, more capital, um, more, more efficiently from a capital perspective than doing it themselves. Right. Okay. Ryan. Yeah. I, like I said, it, it just different, uh, lending areas. So I guess mortgages, uh, student loans, uh, if you really, really have that data advantage, why can't it apply to other areas? You know? Yeah. You would think that's correct. And they have to weigh whether they want to move quickly into these other spots, uh, to capture that market or, uh, move slower so they do it more profitably because there's that threat of uh, upstarts <laughs> coming in and competing with them. But I'll at my future growth opportunity, it is the upstart referral network. They actually announced this yesterday. So not sure, not sure how big of a deal it is. I think they had it in a beta program, but now it's going to everyone. And it might be why the stock was up 6%. I, I don't know why it was up like 6% and it might not be anymore, but it doesn't look crazy complicated, but it's a program that connects borrowers to lenders they want. So ones that either the borrowers want or customers that the lenders want. And it has the potential to further entrench upstart as the layer between financial institutions and lenders. If this can provide value without having any experience, I'm not really sure what value it is. So maybe certain banks have certain borrowers they like, certain borrowers have a preference to not go to other places. They want to hit the local credit union or something like that. Uh, so it's not going to be a big revenue driver, but I think it just helps provide value to their customers. Yeah. I mean, think if you're an institutional investor or uh, in that sort of CRB network, it makes sense. Like if you can get a uh, really low default rate on an 8% uh, consumer loan over the next three years, you know, when do you take it? Yeah. No, I mean, yeah. And it all comes back to, are their default rates good? Are they actually, uh, you know, uh, what are they evaluating these people correctly? Yeah. All right. Highlights on low lights, Brad, uh, what do you think? So mine are very connected. I'll start with the low light. Um, the competitive landscape is absurdly, absurdly intimidating. Um, every single 
big bank. Uh, I mean, the balance sheets are extremely healthy. You've yeah. got you've got Cash App, you've got PayPal using Venmo, and, and now saying that they're going to um, expand that product offering significantly, and it has a massive user base. Um, but because of that, and this kind of relates to my highlight, I, I like the upstart approach, the, the private label. Um, we're not going to try and displace you. We are going to try and facilitate business for you in a more profitable way. I think that's a really powerful model for a startup, for an upstart like <laughs> like this yeah. company is, to kind of stake their claim in the industry without creating unwanted attention and without creating enemies that, that are going to want to want to displace them. That, and I, I do own SoFi, and that's what I like so much about SoFi's Galileo product, um, the, the private or just building companies, um, their own fintech apps. And, and I think Upstart's similar approach is really appealing in this space. So is SoFi a competitor to Upstart? I think you know it better. I can really identify. Uh, yeah, so SoFi, they do have some product overlap. Uh, Upstart is more focused on loans. And, and I don't know if they're going to really ever, ever venture into equity trading or crypto trading or anything like that. Um, but they do have product overlap. So if, and if Upstart wanted to venture into student loans and they would have a lot more product overlap. Okay. Uh, but, but I think the, the, the biggest, the, the biggest, I guess, yeah, the biggest commonality between these companies is their private label API builder for enabling other legacy companies to, to, to compete more effectively without having to do it themselves. Yeah. It comes down to the question that, okay, could Bank of America, PayPal, or Venmo, and then Square or Cash App, is it more valuable for them? Or can they even build their own upstart competitor? Or is it better to just make them the, uh, whatever, the layer in between them and their customers? And I think that's the big, that's the ultimate question for this company. Yeah. I'll get into my highlights then. And it's management uh, is definitely a highlight. Uh, they passed the test basically everything like uh, go watch that video they have it up on their IR page and it's uh, you can usually just tell early on when you kind of trust management and they gave me the vibe that they're trustworthy um, he also had good comments on SPACs someone asked him why he didn't go public via a SPAC he said it's like uh, playing an entire video game getting to the boss level and then handing the controller to someone else uh, I thought that was interesting um, I also think Consumer lending uh, is still sort of young. Uh, I think that's a lending market that has room to grow as well. Um, You're talking about the disruption of it because it's. Yeah, it's I mean, the, the market itself isn't young, but it's getting sort of democratized in that access to capital is easier now for yeah. borrowers. Yeah. Um, but then low lights for me is whenever there's like these risk. I said risk absorption funnels, but where it's like entities behind entities taking the risk, I always think of CDOs and I always think there's room in there for someone to feel like there isn't as much risk as there truly is. Yeah. Um, but I think they'd be able to snuff that out and I'm kind of grasping for low lights at that point. Honestly, the only potential low light is like, why can't someone do this in house? Um, yeah, that's mine. And I guess maybe there's margin of safety that they could be acquired. Uh, this seems like a logical acquisition for a really big bank, but yes. yeah. um, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't invest on that premise. Yeah. 
Agreed. Agreed. All right. My highlights, high margin model. Um, they're taking minimal credit risk themselves. Now, if their technology is making, ends up not working for whatever reason, they screw it up and 70% of their loans are automated. So there could be a lot of screw ups before people realize it. And then the banks start losing money because of them. They would, I believe, be very upset at upstart. Um, but the industry seems like it needs disrupting the credit score. Uh, you know, the credit score, whatever you think of it, it feels like it needs modernizing. I don't know. Uh, I think the, there's yeah. a win-win-win scenario here where I mean that the customer's winning, where they're getting better loans at better rates. The banks are winning because they're getting less defaults. And Upstart is winning because they're skimming 1% off the top. Uh, I think there's a potential to build a moat here through high switching costs uh, and maybe economies of scale. I'm still hesitant on the, the data economies of scale, if you want to argue that, but I think the switching costs probably are high. Low lights, I hate AI black boxes. And I say, quote, air quotes, AI black boxes, because one, it makes it so I can't understand it. Uh, how were they able to acquire this data? And why can't anyone else acquire it? That sh is it the way they're manipulating it? Because if so, maybe, I don't know, is it, it like, it, is there a key person? Is it goo that, you know, if they lose him? <laughs> or, that like, feels is like that, the biggest it, competitive it, advantage of the whole business is goo. I know, but <laughs> eventually he's going to eventually, it feels like he can't rely on some employees to just carry you. Maybe he can, but as an investor, it feels a bit risky. And I don't he's know why. He's a teal fellow. I guess, don't doubt the teal fellows. Uh, I think in the short run, stimulus might hurt them. People might not need as much to borrow. Um, and the need for constant improvements, it feels like an industry sort of like cybersecurity where basically everyone's just gonna compete and compete and compete and start building better models. It means R&D might have to stay high. It means they might have to lower their rates. That's just kind of some of the risks I've been thinking of. I don't know. I said a lot of things. Maybe you guys have any any thoughts or no, disagree I mean, on anything there? They look... There's a, there is a ton to like about the business right now. There's just a little bit of uncertainty around, and e correctly, I, I think they should be sort of discreet about what they're, if, I mean, if this AI really is their advantage, like you don't want them just giving it away, but I always have a hard time throwing money at an algorithm without knowing why yeah. it's it. As, like advantaged versus competitors. It's like if there's the Coca-Cola secret formula, but no one could taste Coke. <laughs> you know, I don't know, Brad, uh, any, any thoughts before we hit the final question? I just think the, them maintaining that, 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 um, default rate advantage and, and the APR advantage is going to be how, how they prove to the world that this is, this is real. And, and I think as long as that is able to be a noticeable edge for them, I think they'll be able to compete effectively. All right. Well, more or less interested. We'll start as always with Brad. Uh, I got to go more interested. Anytime I see a company post the kind of quarter that this that this organization posted, the kind of revenue beat and 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 rate and the guidance raise that they gave, um, it was it was pretty incredible, pretty eye opening. I'm like I'm glad we we dove into this one, and I think it is it is going pretty close to the top of my watch list after this episode. All right, that's exciting, Ryan. Yeah, I'm for sure more interested as well. This feels like. Uh, there's just, so, there's so much to love about the business and obviously $11 billion market cap right now, you're asking a lot. Yeah. Fully diluted. Um, yeah. And the, the thing is, it, it seems like a really high price. It could be the right price. There is a little, maybe I'm wrong in forecasting their growth from here. Um, 
because, and that's my only hesitation is it's hard to forecast that growth. You don't know what competitors look like. Uh, I don't know the space as well. It's not a product where it's not like yeah. Autodesk where, you know, you're going to get a minimal churn on a really important subscription, something like that. You have to, you have to know the landscape really well. So I'd have to learn a lot more behind that, but yeah, at the right price, this is a business that I like. Yeah, I agree. Definitely. I'm sorry. Just no, go ahead. Go ahead. Second. Um, sorry to interrupt, but uh, Ryan, I think Ryan brings up a really good point for anyone wanting to start a position. I think it makes a ton of sense to, to kind of tiptoe into this one um, and, and, and do like, and you use the starter position approach. Like, like we talk about sometimes um, just to give yourself the, the freedom and the optionality to, to kind of, yeah, to be opportunistic if this $11 billion hefty price tag um, gets gets cut by any any portion. So yeah, I, I, I think I should have said that when I said more interested. If I were to buy a position here, it would be done very, very, very slowly and over a long period of time. Yeah, you gotta, you gotta think here, okay, if I'm buying enough shares, how comfortable would I be if this gets cut by 80%? Yeah, that's kind of what with this valuation, it's what you gotta look at. And it... Pay, pay close attention to whether or not they fulfill the guidance they issued because it was really, really, it seems like aggressive guidance from the outside looking in, but if they can, if they can generate 500 million in revenue for 2021, that's really impressive. Yep. I agree. And I'll hit my, yeah, I'm more interested in the business. Um, I got just concerned on valuation. The, the thing I think about is, okay, if revenue slows, the business is still fine, but the market's going to reprice it so much lower. There's a lot, there's not much of a floor here and I would be uncomfortable without knowing it's not a predictable enough business for me to want to pay a premium multiple. And that's just kind of where I'm out on it. Yeah. And yeah. Maybe, but I, the, I know we sound like a broken record when we say like, Oh, it's not predictable. Yeah. But it, this is, you know, it is a young company and that could be as advantageous as it could hurt them. You know, if someone's yeah. able to copycat this um, and those variables or the columns that they have in their spreadsheet are repeatable, then maybe uh, maybe revenue growth won't double year over year for inf in perpetuity. In perpetuity. I would say that is not going to happen, <laughs> but that is the key. It's a little bit, uh, it's it doesn't make logical sense at first, but in companies that have such profitable business models better have some sort of defensibility because if a business is uber profitable, then it's going to attract smart competitors. Maybe, that, maybe that's why they didn't put gross margins on there. They're like, no, nah, our gross margins are hundred percent, but we don't want to tell you. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's the whole capitalism is destructive. Like, you know, if you have, and business model that people really want to be a part of, you're yeah. going to attract capital towards it. And you don't want, you'd rather be in a business that doesn't attract smart future Teal fellows or Stanford grads <laughs> or whatever. You know, this is an industry that attracts people like that, the smartest people to go after this. And that's a lot tougher than a business like Sherwin-Williams, like paint. No one from Silicon Valley is like, let's disrupt the paint industry. <laughs> uh, but yeah, Brad, do you have anything else before we? Uh, no, I think I think it's, it's an exciting company. It's an expensive company. And that, I mean, that always raises the stakes for them delivering on, on this guidance and for them continuing to be 
a very, very hyper growth organization. And, and like you two are both saying, the company can remain extremely healthy and growth can slow and it can still get a large haircut with nothing being wrong with the underlying business. So just good to keep in mind. And that is, you know, if you've listened to the show for a long time, you're like, oh God, you guys, every single time it's, oh, great business, bad valuation. Great business, bad <laughs> That's valuation. how it always works. Listen, I can't think of a really, really good business that never received a haircut where there was a better entry point. You just got to be prepared for that entry point. Patience, yeah. Patience, 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 starter positions. Um, but overall, would I, be, I wouldn't be surprised if this is the next, you know, Visa or MasterCard. I also wouldn't be surprised Ooh, if it's not. Big words. <laughs> Those are big words, but it well, sounds like if they're legit, it sounds like there could be some of that there. Again, I don't think that's a high likelihood, but you know, I wouldn't I would be wouldn't be surprised if they don't make it to something like that. But it seems like some of those factors that made those one of the best businesses of all time uh, could be here. I, we could be eating our words in a, in a few. Years, <laughs> what's the uh, what's the stock for next week? Yeah, Brett, so I'm, your turn. I'm picking, and it is going to be Danaher. I forget who recommended it, uh, but it's a name that gets thrown out a lot. Danaher. Danaher. Uh, they Never have apparently of one of the best management teams of all time. Uh, I I don't remember who recommended it, so I'm sorry for getting your name, but we are going to be looking at them. So yeah, what do they do? I don't know. Something about pumps. American. Yeah, so this will be fun. Yeah, we'll we'll all go into the blank slate. Uh, I got it. Company designs, manufactures, and markets professional, medical, industrial, and commercial products and services. (laughs) I guess that's not helpful. There we go. Professional services. All right. I think that's going to do it. Yep. All right. Thanks, Brad, for coming on. Thank you all for listening. Remember, we are not financial advisors. Anything we say on the show is not formal advice or recommendation. Ryan and I are general partners at Arch Capital. Clients at Arch Capital may hold securities discussed on this podcast. Again, thank you all for listening. This was a fun one. We'll see you next week. 